0: Hi, everybody. I'm Peter Travers. This is Popcorn, where we talk about the movies, and one of my favorite movies of this year, this decade, of forever, is called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by this guy, Quentin Tarantino. Thank you very much. Good Uh, to see you here. I really
1: appreciate the decade moniker, because it's actually hard to... uh, 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 give that to a two thousand uh, to a nine uh, to a movie that falls in the nines. Uh, so I, I appreciate know, but it. you have
0: to do it. You <laughs> know, usually <laughs> you're supposed to let years go by, mm-hmm. but this movie like speaks to people like me. Well, I appreciate well, you, 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 get the,
1: you get the jokes. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> the jokes. They'll get it too when they see it. Mm-hmm. But it's a pleasure to have you here, Quentin. It's good to and be here. To geek out a little bit
1: about this movie, which is I'm right done.
0: now, isn't it is, it? is it the Blu-ray now? Yeah, it's just coming. Cut.
1: Yeah, it's just coming out. No, it's not an. The cut. it's the still cut but we have about 20 minutes of extra stuff yeah.
0: talk about this mm-hmm. you know everybody has it on their best list and it's
1: nominated for mm-hmm. every
0: single does that matter to you anymore
1: it's It's fun. It's nice. It's really wonderful to, like, actually, you know, do a movie and then kind of be in that, like, winner circle of, of, uh, we were talking about it just before the show started, between, like, the seven or eight movies uh, that Mm -hmm. people are talking about and to be invited to the different parties and, uh, no, that's actually really fun. Like, I've been there where I thought I had one of the best movies and and, and, uh, it's not in that roundup, so it's actually nice to be in the roundup. I want to know. What was the genesis of this one? What was
0: the first thing? Not because you sat down and you started to write it, but when was this in your head?
1: Well, this was kind of a long process, uh, uh, similar to *Inglorious Bastards*, where I kind of, I had the idea, and as opposed to, oh, hey, I'm going to sit down and and bang out this script. That wasn't really kind of the case on him. This was more kind of an exploratory kind of thing. So there was a couple of years, I'm just kind of figuring out who the characters were. And I wasn't in any... Uh, hurry to sit down and, and write a movie script. Even like my very first couple years of writing on it, I wrote it as a, a novel, or at least a couple chapters as a novel in an exploratory way. And then I, you know, I even wrote the like the uh, 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 the Al Pacino scene in Musso and Franks. I wrote that as a mm-hmm. one-act play at one point. And not because I was planning on doing it as a play or even planning on doing it as a novel. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But it was more an exploratory writing exercise. But the the initial... Uh, um, I guess genesis of the whole thing was um, it was a while ago I was I was making a movie and I was dealing with a, a, an older action kind of guy actor and uh, I'm, I'm doing the film and then he comes to me and he goes you know Quentin uh, um, I have a stunt double and he's been my stunt double for about nine years now now I haven't busted your balls about it because there's not really anything for him to do in this <laughs> But there's that gag coming up on Thursday. He could do that. <laughs> so if you wouldn't mind, maybe we could, you know, uh, it would be a nice thing to throw him something and he could come on Thursday and do that thing and that would be, be good for me and he's good. You'll like him. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, no worries. So Thursday rolls around and he shows up and he does a great job with his stunt, no worries. But anyway, the day's going on and part of the thing about about their relationship, it's like, it, you can tell, and it's been going on for nine years, you could tell that there was a time that this guy was the perfect double for the actor. <laughs> perfect. I mean, you could have shot close-ups with the stunt guy and <laughs> they, they would have passed. This time was not that time. <laughs> they had kind of grown in different directions to some degree. And you could tell that this was like maybe the last or second to the last thing that they'd be doing together. And I kind of glance over and I see the two of them sitting in director's chairs on the set talking. They're smoking cigarettes and just, you know, shooting the breeze. And and naturally, since one guy is the stunt guy of the other guy, they're actually both dressed in identical costumes. (laughs) Which is, you know, that's the relationship. That's what what they do. Mm -hmm. And like the stunt guy has got his hair done in a cockamamie way that like resembles the actor and they're both wearing the same costume and they're smoking cigarettes. And I'm kind of watching them talk. And I'm seeing the whole nine years of their relationship. And I know that this is the tail end of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching them talk and I'm like, wow, these guys have been buddies for a long time and they've been working buddies. And it's an interesting friendship because, yes, I'm sure it's a friendship, but one is working for the others so there's a subservientness implied in all that but you know an actor does a lot of movies all right on this movie he knows the director and his friends and in this other movie he knows an an actor or two and their friends but there's a lot of movies he doesn't know anybody until he gets to know them but the stunt guy he does know Mm -hmm. And that's his little buddy on the set that they can talk and and, and BS with each other. And so I'm sitting there watching this relationship as they just kind of talk to each other, sitting in their director's chairs, dressed identically to each other. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting relationship. If ever I do a movie about movies, about Mm -hmm. the making of entertainment... That could be an interesting way in the relationship between an actor and a stuntman.
0: And it is, and it was. Thank you. I have to show this clip now because it goes right to what you were saying. Let's just look at that. Perfect. Did you just come prepared for that? <laughs> to just do this clip, and you were gonna. No, play I have no it? idea what the clip is. It's Leo and Kurt Russell. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's run that clip. Let's see it. Nothing is happening. Oh, well, I'm asking you to help me out, man. Well, if I, the answer is yeah. no, the the answer is no. Not not no with excuses. Hey, hey man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know. I and mean, I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, Hey, you could do anything you want to him. To throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set.
1: Oddly enough, it's actually funny. Just even me telling that little story and watching that scene, mm-hmm. that actually ended up being very moving, actually watching, like, you know, uh, uh, Rick... Fighting for his guy. He was. He was like, like You really, could do anything. You he, could beat him up. Yeah. It's okay. Like, but he you needs know, to it's be like in this. It, it's not a du jour anymore. Oh, that his yeah. guy's gonna get hired. <laughs> so he's got. You know, he's got. He's got to talk the talk. He's got to convince <laughs> the stunt gaffer to do it. You know. He does. But good it, for it. him. Now we're in
0: that world of Sharon Tate and the Mansons. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Was that always what you wanted to have as part of this? You yeah, no, to that, no, that no. it with this.
1: Well, there was always part of it. One, because I like the idea for a couple of reasons. One, I like the idea of exploring the character of Sharon Tate, who, through the sensationalism of the circumstances and the sensationalism of history, has almost been reduced to a. a an extra in her own story, to some degree, um, and of course, I wanted to deal with uh, Charles Manson and the the family because i 'm kind of dealing with Hollywood mythology at that time, Los Angeles county mythology, and they are part of that fabric. Mm-hmm. You almost can 't deal with that uh, that city without thinking about them, and also it's uh, uh, in dealing with the uh, um, the ups and the downs of, Holly, of, of that hippie Hollywood, they were part of that fabric. But one of the things that I'm really proud about about the movie, and part of it is just um, Margot's enchanting performance that she gives, is if I'm dealing with an audience that's like 800 people in the theater, for the most part, those 800 people before the movie started, when they thought of Sharon Tate, they just thought about her murder. Mm -hmm. They thought about her as a murder victim. And I think the perception of Sharon has changed since this movie has played out during the year. Now people think about her as more than just a murder victim. They think about her as a person. They think, they contemplate the life that she lived. She is a character. She's a person. She's more than a murder statistic.
0: She seems to be living her
1: own life while the other characters are part of the story. Yeah, no, I, well, well, that was actually kind of, a, that, was, that, was, that was done purposely, because part of the thing is, you know, I mean, the whole movie, I spent all this time figuring out who the characters were, and then at some point, I had to figure, I actually asked myself the question, I was like, okay, okay, now I'm kind of ready to do it. I, I, I have my milieu, I, I know the environment, uh, and I know the characters, what story do I want to tell? Me, Quentin. Mm-hmm. I literally asked myself the question, what story do you want to tell? And then I thought to myself, well, you know, um, I had a story in mind. And, like, you could imagine uh, uh, um, like an Elmore leonard mm-hmm. kind of story. I mean, even Cliff and, and Rick even sound, feel like Elmore Leonard type of, type of characters. But then I thought about it and I go, no, I don't think I really want to tell a movie story or have a movie plot. I actually think I just want to do A Day in the Life. Or a few days in the life of these characters. Mm-hmm. I actually think the characters are strong enough to hold it. And I actually think the milieu that I'm creating and, the, and the, you know, the town itself is enough to hold it. So in that regard, I didn't want to come up with a necessarily plot for Sharon. I just wanted to have us watch her live her life. Mm-hmm. She runs some errands. She drives around, she talks to a couple of her friends, she uh, gets a book, she goes to see the movie. And and to me, it was an aspect of just watching her kind of just live her life undramatically is kind of what was robbed from her. And that's what we could observe. That's a good way
0: of putting it, because a lot of people said, well, but she doesn't have a part. You know, she doesn't have this thing.
1: And yet, just- I, was, I was offended by that. Because, look, I mean, uh, part of the thing is... I'm having her spend time by herself. Look, I could have given her a dog, <laughs> and she could have talked to the dog, and then she would have had more conversations. All right? Yes, I could have come up with a plot. And actually, what the hell is plot? Plot is now, now you're talking to other characters, moving a plot rock <laughs> from here to here. I didn't do that. I just up- observed her living her life. And the fact that people would think that, that uh, a character is denoted by the level of dialogue that they have, I just think uh, that is a situation where I don't agree with the, that hypothesis of drama. In terms of you changing history, like you do in *Inglorious yeah, yeah. Bastards, yeah.
0: you know, well, it's good to kill Hitler. I think you know, <laughs> if I were making it, I would say, yeah, and I want yeah. these people dead. But huh. without doing spoilers for those who haven't watched it or are looking mm-hmm. at the TV, but you do change it. Is that something that was built in to you yeah. when you were doing it? You wanted the Manson and that whole thing done the way
1: you saw it in your head. Yeah, that was, yeah. it was kind of baked into the pie pretty early on. Once I realized I was going to deal with that aspect of the situation and, and even deal with that night, I knew that that was the avenue I was going to go with. You know? But also I also felt there was a kind of a situation where it was like I created this character of Cliff and I'd kind of set up that he was this kind of indestructible kind of badass type of character. So if you were imagining the worst scenarios for those killer hippies Mm -hmm. to pick the wrong house to break into, a house with him in it would be the worst scenario for them. (laughs) And there was something actually kind of a lot of fun about that. With you, I,
0: last time you were here, mm-hmm. I just don't want to buy into it. I'm in denial on mm-hmm. you saying, you know, mm-hmm. oh, i maybe my tenth movie is my last movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll wait till I'm sixty and that'll be my last movie. Mm-hmm. What the? F- why do you <laughs> say that? Do you do this to just taunt me and everybody that does what I do?
1: I do it just so you'll say this back again. So I, I just feel like a bask I don't in the hear, uh, look at your life now.
0: You, you since I've met you, you got married. Yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna be a father. Right on. How man. has this yeah. changed you? Well, it hasn't hasn't changed me yet, but give me a few months. A month. I'm sure it's going to change. No, I just, uh,
1: yeah, you nice. with diapers, I just don't see it. And I just, I want to be there. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I want to see some of that happen. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's going to have a, I'm, it's just going to have a change. But you know, I mean, uh, look, I haven't retired. So the idea of me talking about the aesthetics of my retiring before I've retired is mm-hmm. kind of obnoxious. Uh, uh, um, but there is this aspect i mean i guess i do feel that like directing is a young man's game and i do feel that uh um cinema is changing and now i'm a little bit more part of the old guard than i was before but there is an aspect that now that you know i think i'm still a fairly young man but the thing is um you clearly have no energy quentin yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, exactly right at, the, at my base core, I'm very proud of my directing, but at my base core, since my whole, uh, you know, my whole modus operandi is like kind of facing a bunch of blank paper where there was nothing before, mm-hmm. and then filling those blank pages, and then going off and, and, and creating something that didn't exist, and then making the movie about it. Uh, so there is this writer aspect of me. So I kind of like that now is time uh, 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 for this like, third act to just lean a little bit more into the literary lean a little bit more into the writing, which would be good, you know, uh, as a a new father, as a new husband. Now I'm not just, you know, grabbing my family and and yanking them to Germany or yanking them to Sri Lanka or wherever the next story takes place. I can be just a little bit more of a homebody and become a little bit more of a man of letters. Frankly, though, I'm actually, I'm actually really kind of excited about the idea that I really have no idea what that 10th movie was go- is going to be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very, very open idea. But one of the things on this movie, though, normally the thing is people are waiting for my scripts as soon as they get done. So if, like, if I finish, um, okay, so say I finish a script on uh, a Wednesday of a week. Usually by the next Thursday, we're opening offices. Mm-hmm. Because I don't even—I'm you know, not worried about getting a, a movie set up, so I can just finance the pre-production until we actually make a deal. That wasn't the case with this one, because when I finished this, this script for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there was two things. I knew I wasn't ready to just jump into pre-production. I was, That's a big long road, and I'm not ready to quite start that journey yet. But more important than that was—I had more inside me. I was more—I I was in a writing place, and I had m- more to get out. And so I finished this script and I didn't really tell anybody that I was finished and I do not have that kind of self control normally. Uh, I'm normally bragging about it. So I I finished the script, I put it aside and then I wrote a play. (laughs) So I finished the play, then I wrote a play, then I put the play aside, and then I wrote a five-episode TV series, and then I was ready to start talking about the movie that I wrote before that. I've got to have one question
0: from the world outside for you, Dan. Okay, Okay, sure. At least. Joey Wise says, have changes in technology, film techniques, and society helped or hindered your ability to produce films?
1: Well, you know, the thing about it is, uh, uh, there's things in technology that have definitely... Help movies, and I think there's things in technology that have hurt movies. But you don't have to, you know. But you know, but if you pick and choose, yeah. you know, from the buffet table for what you like and what makes things better, and um, uh, and you ignore the things that you don't want to do, uh, then yes. But like you, know, but you, know, but just to give you like a more historical example or something, uh, I mean, one of the things I'm really proud about in in uh, um, this movie was uh, when it came to recreating a living, breathing Los Angeles, that we're actually using the real Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. All right. When it came to recreating this, this world, uh, we didn't do it via green screen. We didn't do it via uh, uh, CGI. We built. We built. We art directed. Uh, you know, like for something like Hollywood Boulevard, look, we had to get all the uh, 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 shop owners to sign off on it. We had to get the whatever, the Chamber of Commerce or whatever mm-hmm. to let us do it. And frankly, in a world where it's easy enough to do it digitally, uh, we didn't have to convince the studio to let us do it. They kind of knew that that was kind of part that was baked in the pie, but they didn't give us they didn't give me a problem about it. And and they could have. And they could like, wow, why are you spending all the right. money to do that? We can just do it this way, all right? But they didn't. They realized that that was part of the aesthetic. That was what it was. And uh, you know, like when, uh, um, um, uh, but but that is. You know, that's unusual. I always got a kick out of that Canon movie that uh, Toby Hooper did, uh, Life Force. <laughs> and so I was watching the DVD for Life Force, and they had a little making of. And then we're talking about Life Force, made for Canon pictures, all right? And I'm watching it, and like, the making of these enormous sets. I mean, just as big as two football fields, <laughs> but, like, you know, airplane hangar. I mean, sets that they would never build today. And this was that was a day when they... Built. They built. All right. they you watch, like, Cutthroat Island, and you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is the most opulent movie ever they made. they find these people right. to build yeah. this, to yeah. do this.
0: Well, you built it, Quentin, and yeah. so you, we're all excited that you did. Thank you, Peter. want to continue to have you do that. As you know, though, we haven't talked about that one aspect of the movie that I always end with, which is song. The music that you have in this movie is incredible. Oh, thank you. So I need something from you mm-hmm. that's from this movie. That suggests everything Mm -hmm. that's in. We've said
1: so many songs. Well, you know, I actually think probably the one that actually plays the most, I guess, like a theme, would be that Jose Feliciano version of California Dreaming. Dreaming, Yeah, not the Mama Cass. Yeah, not the Mama Cass one. Do your best,
0: Jose Feliciano.
1: Oh, the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. (laughs) That's (laughs) great. Perfect for him. <laughs> yes. I actually heard a critic actually wrote uh, uh, when the film came out. They were talking about how how like how both mournful and almost sinisterly ominous that song plays, and they said it is almost like the theme of Vulture circling Yellow Drive. Wow, <laughs> that's it a great does have a that, one. That's a great critical it uh, really is. image. Like, <laughs> uh, they are
0: doing that. Thank you, my friend Peter.
1: Thank always you so great much. To, always, always great.